And the last thing he posted on Facebook was, why is it that people will believe the worst things about you without question, but have to be persuaded to believe the good things about you? The extraordinary violence was used against him. And he was dead, I think, within 36 to 48 hours. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The murder of father of two, Jason Corbett, is a crime that broke all the norms. A male victim, two unlikely killers, and now a Supreme Court hearing that could see a fresh trial and years more trauma for his devastated family. This week, I'm talking to journalist Ralph Regal, who's the Southern correspondent from the Irish Independent and the author of the number one bestseller, My Brother Jason. Ralph has covered the dreadful tragedy of Jason Corbett from the beginning, and he's become a firm friend and confidant of his family in Ireland, who are now facing uncertain and dark days. He tells me about the blonde, all-American Molly Martins and her FBI father, Tom, who are fighting for their freedom in the North Carolina Supreme Court. Of the lies they told about Jason and of the twisted plan she had to take his children. And Ralph details why the pair who've been convicted of the murder may get another chance to defend their actions. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So Ralph, these are hard times, aren't they, for the for the family? Um, you know, the the um having to face into this again. If you just explain to us what is happening on Monday. Is this a hearing or is this the beginning of a lengthy hearing? Uh, it's a critical part of the appeal process, essentially the North Carolina Supreme Court. Now, that's not the US Supreme Court. It's a different thing. It's the highest court within the state of North Carolina. And that's going to have an oral hearing into the appeal by Tom and Molly Martins. And essentially what it is, it's, a, it's an opportunity uh, for the judges to hear in person about what the lawyers view as the critical elements of the appeal, but it will also give an opportunity for the prosecutors, the Attorney General's office in uh, North Carolina, to outline their objections to the Court of Appeal ruling. So essentially what happened was um, Tom and Molly Martins were convicted unanimously by a jury uh, in, it was uh, August of 2017, and that was at Davidson County Superior Court. So it's essentially like the equivalent of what we would call like a circuit court. That was immediately appealed. Um, Tom and Molly are serving 20 to 25 years in prison for the second degree murder of Jason Corbett in August uh, 2015. They immediately launched appeals. Uh, there was an oral hearing into that appeal by the Court of Appeal, which, which was staged in January of 2019. And then in February of last year, the Court of Appeal, by a two to one split decision, two to one, two of the judges found in favour of the Martins, one judge disagreed and found that it was a fair trial. So that has now been appealed to the North Carolina Supreme Court and it's up to them to decide what's the next step. 
So in other words, um, we're either going to see a retrial or the original conviction will be upheld. They're the two, the, one of the two, one of those two things will happen. Now, Tom and Molly Martins are not a usual pair of jailbirds. Um, Molly Martins is a very good-looking, blonde, all-American girl. Her father's a former FBI agent. How did they come to being before the courts and, and with the eyes of the world's media on them? Yeah, it's one of those stories, Nicola, that has so many elements that generated interest, particularly, I suppose, within the media. Um, I suppose to the very beginning, uh, Jason Corbett was a widower. Uh, he married his um, not quite teenage sweetheart, but they were very, very young when they met. Uh, Margaret was his first wife. And tragically, she died um from a severe asthma attack in Limerick. And she left Jason with two children that were aged two years and under. So you can imagine that's an overwhelming um, tragedy for any person, let alone a man trying to cope with two very young children. And how he met Molly Martins was that his family, he has fantastic family and friends in Limerick, and they all rallied around to help him basically minding kids, helping with food, helping with housework, whatever like that. He was holding down a full-time job with a US-owned packaging company in Limerick. Uh, but he, I think, as he recovered from, if you can ever recover from a tragedy like that, but he, he wanted to get his own bit of independence. So what he did was he thought to try and ease the burden on his family that he would get... I mean, all pairs in to try and help with the the minding the children, a bit of the housework or whatever. And what happened was a lot of those all pairs were very temporary. And he found it was disruptive with the children. Just when the children were getting to know someone, they were moving on, someone new was coming in. So he opted for a nanny. And the tragedy in all of this was that that's how he came in contact with Molly Martins. And from the very beginning the levels of deviousness involved are actually quite shocking. Um, it appears that Molly had been trawling nanny websites, looking for someone that would have suited her needs. And this is a girl with history of very severe mental health problems. Which nobody nobody knew of, certainly. And was she was she able to... So she was a girl from a fairly wealthy American family. She was a, a swimmer, was she? Or she was a, a cheerleader in, in the schools. And that kind of idea of that good-looking, blonde, <clears throat> successful, world-at-her-feet girl. Like, why was somebody like her looking for a job as a nanny? Yeah, and that's, I think, part of the problem is that on the surface, Molly was, uh, she was on, she claimed she was on the fringes of a US Olympic swimming team. She was an honor student from Clemson, one of the most famous universities in America. And um, her family were all super achievers. Her mother was an academic. Her father was a lawyer. He worked with the FBI, retired from the FBI. And then he began working with the US Department of Energy almost as a counterintelligence officer to protect American energy interests. As several of her brothers went into federal service. They were all very accomplished professionals. But the truth is that Molly suffered from severe mental health problems. She never graduated from Clemson. She wasn't on any US Olympic swimming team. Her life was actually a succession of quite low profile. I don't like using the word menial, but those type of jobs, shop assistant, things like that. And it was constantly interrupted by severe mental health problems. And what it appears to have happened is that she was looking at nanny websites because she felt that children would offer her the opportunity. Children would put her life 
right. It would allow her to have the life that she never really got to enjoy or felt she enjoyed herself. There were levels of accomplishment and achievement within her family that I think within her own mind, she just couldn't live up to or couldn't match. So what she did was she was looking for clearly someone who was vulnerable, someone who had children and would give her an opportunity in a way to address the difficulties in her own life through raising children. And the problem for Jason was that she had suggested it would be cheaper for him to basically, you know, to to deal directly with her, which is what happened. So he was never aware of any of her mental health problems. She was not vetted. And the difficulties were that when she came to Ireland very quickly, a relationship developed between herself and Jason. And all of the indications, certainly from her, from his family, who are remarkable in all of this, and the Corbett family in Limerick have gone to extraordinary lengths to see that justice um, was done for him. Particularly, I have to say, Tracy, his sister, who has really campaigned tirelessly and exhaustively, exhaustively over the years to ensure that Molly and Tom answered for what had happened. But none of them were aware of her background. And I mean, in, in, in writing this story, the, the phrase that cropped up multiple times with Jason's family was a phrase I hadn't heard before, which is gaslighting. And it appears a classic case where Molly had deceived Jason in terms of the truth of her past, but had then manipulated him to the position where she was undermining his whole confidence, mental health status, all that kind of stuff for her own ends, which really, according to the Corbett family, was access to his two children. I've spoken to to Tracy Lynch once or twice myself, and yes, I agree with you, she has really campaigned for justice and she has now taken on um, the role of the parent of those children. But we'll come to that in a bit. They, she and, and, and Jason's friends and that, they... They, there was always some little niggling thing about Molly, wasn't there? There was, it was all a little bit of a fairy tale that this, um, you know, American would come over the nanny and all of a sudden they'd fall in love and the family would be complete again. I mean, that was, I think a lot of people close to him had this sort of feeling that, mm, I'm just not sure this is completely right, but then they couldn't say. And we can all understand how that is. Sometimes a relationship develops and you sort of have, you just, it's not your place maybe to step in and, and do you know, and if, if it was something that was a fairy tale, you know, who was anybody else to, to, to say otherwise? But um, I think she sort of, she sort of brought him away from his family a little bit. She, like like most sort of vindictive characters, they, she sort of separated him a little bit from his family and very quickly she pushed the relationship and wanted him to move out to the States so as they could start a new life out there, away from anyone who knew him. If you, if you talk to any members of the family, the tragedy is that each one of them had a little piece of the jigsaw but they weren't able to get together to put all the pieces of the jigsaw together, which would have explained what Molly was at, the truth of her story and what was going on. No one realised it. And I think exactly as you said, here's a young man who's lost his wife, 
is struggling to rebuild a life, look after two small children. And I think everyone looked at it and thought that, you know, if if he's blessed with love a second time, if he gets the fairy tale, if things work out to bring him happiness, who are they to deny him that? But I don't think anyone realised, no one saw the full picture of what was going on. Molly didn't like living in the house that, that Jason and Mags had built together because she felt it constantly reminded him of Mags. So the house was sold. Then she suddenly didn't like living in Limerick because she felt homesick. She wanted to go back to the States. And she kept, I think, using the, the threat of the loss of love against him until eventually he decided that they would get married, they would relocate to the States. But it's very telling that they got married in June of 2011 at a lavish ceremony in Tennessee in an old Confederate um, kind of mansion, which was, by the way, largely paid for by Jason himself. And just a couple of weeks later, Molly went to a divorce lawyer and Molly's sole question was, and remember now, this is just weeks after she had married the man she had told was the love of her life. And she wanted to know what were her rights to his children. And she was told she had no rights to his children because she wasn't the birth mother. And the only way she would get rights to the children was as if Jason signed, effectively signed adoption papers, giving her or legally granting her the same rights as he enjoyed. And he steadfastly refused to do that, despite repeated pressure by her family, including by her father, who once took him out for a game of golf and said, wouldn't it be a lovely birthday present for Molly if you sign these adoption papers and I'll pay for all of the legal fees entitled. But I think by this stage, there were several incidents at the wedding. There were several incidents in the aftermath of the wedding that obviously gave Jason pause for concern or cause for concern. And he wouldn't sign the papers. And gradually what happened then was this thing that I mentioned about gaslighting, that Molly seemed to be waging a very surreptitious campaign to undermine her husband, to make him doubt his own confidence. Um, she would hide his money. She would empty his wallet. She would hide his keys. She would give different stories to different people about what he was doing, all aimed at undermining his confidence and his self-belief. And it wasn't a very, very happy situation. And gradually it got to the point where Jason's family are convinced he had seen enough of the bizarre behaviour by Molly that he was concerned for the children and he was planning to bring them back to Ireland, which of course then is when the, 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 the awful killing occurred. And they believe he had packed bags, that he was ready to fly back to Ireland with the children to leave them here and that he would then go back to the States to sort out his affairs with Molly. But unfortunately, he was killed before he could do so. And Ralph, how long did the actual marriage last? It lasted just about uh, four years. So they got married in June of 2011 and he was murdered the first week of uh, August of uh, 2015. Uh, they lived in a, a fabulous house, beautiful home in the northern part of North Carolina. He had a very good job with a US packaging company and Molly drove a really nice car. Uh, but there, there were so many things came out after the killing and Molly seemed to be burning through money. Um, she liked a very light, lavish lifestyle. Um, interestingly, I spoke to several neighbours um, in the estate where they lived and several of them were genuinely fearful of Molly. They didn't like being left on their own with Molly because they just felt 
that she was capable of spinning stories about people. She was, if, if she took a dislike to someone, she would start spreading stories about them. And she seemed a classic manipulator. She would work to use people against each other. And I think one of the, you know, you spoke about why this story has engendered so much public interest. There are so many elements to this that are just beyond belief. I mean, one of the stories that I was researching, which is actually 100% true and confirmed, is that Molly started a book club in the area. And the two books that she recommended to the book club just, I think, about 18 months to two years before she killed her husband was Gone Girl and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Both stories about manipulative women women who are willing to kill to get their own ends within a family environment. So you've mentioned that she had a history of mental illness. What sort of illness did she suffer from? I mean, she obviously wanted the children and not him. Is that how we're seeing it? And had to marry him in order to try and get some legal rights over the children. And then perhaps her plan was to take, to, to remove him from the equation. And the happy family was then her and those, and those little children. I mean, she must have built up a relationship with them though, over the four years as well of the marriage. Was there any evidence or suggestion that she was trying to manipulate the kids? There's lots of evidence of the way she would treat the children and the way she would treat her husband in front of the children. Um, Things about insisting on being called mama or mother, that she seemed to attach an awful lot of store to that. And she didn't like the children talking about their birth mother, Mags. She didn't like her husband referring, you know, in terms of anniversaries and birthdays and things like that, to his first wife um, and her, her history. A lot of her history really only came into the public domain for the first time was during, after um, Jason had been killed, there were custody hearings in the States and Molly tried everything to gain custody of the two children. And what emerged during the trial process was that one of her former boyfriends was so concerned that she could get sole access to these children um, over Jason's Irish family, that he gave evidence. And the evidence he gave was of a very troubled young woman who would get severe bouts of depression, almost to the point where she would become catatonic. There would be days on end where she would refuse to get out of bed. There would be days on end where she would be crying inside in the um, their apartment. Uh, there was one major hospitalization which occurred in Georgia. And that very much fits then with some of the later evidence that was given by some of Jason's friends of uh, one of them told me that he came in, he had been playing golf with Jason and they'd come back to his house in Limerick. And this is before he married Molly. And when they came into the house, all the blinds were drawn, the, wind, the, the lights were off and Molly was curled up in a fetal position in the sitting room having torn lumps of her own hair out and was crying hysterically on the floor. And he basically had to pick her up and put her to bed upstairs that she was so upset. And that seems to have been the pattern of a very, very troubled young woman, but yet who seemed to have a plan or seemed to believe that access to children was somehow going to be the answer to all of her problems. And that sounds like somebody who needed proper psychiatric help um, more than, you know, a mental illness that possibly could be handled at home or with counselling. That that sounds like, you know, a massive step above that. Was it 
hidden that illness by her family? Was there a shame associated with it or, or was she, did she actually get proper help at any point? Um, I know I think she did get proper help, but there certainly was an element where it wasn't spoken about. I mean, what's extraordinary is that during the actual murder trial um, in 2017, there was absolutely no reference throughout the entire hearing to Molly's mental health history. Whereas there was a lot of references to <clears throat> Jason Corbett, that Jason Corbett had gone to a doctor in North Carolina, that he had felt under pressure, and he was obviously very concerned that things weren't working out. And there was a lot of references to that, but there was absolutely no references to Molly's history of mental health issues, which I think could be down to the fact that um, she wasn't treated in North Carolina. She was treated in Georgia. And she was treated in Tennessee. And none of that material was actually brought in. But if you talk to any members of Jason's family, like it's extraordinary some of the things that, for instance, um, I think one of um, Jason's nephews had gone skydiving and he was enthused by the experience and he spoke about it. And the next thing, Molly came out with all kinds of extraordinary stories that she had done this. She had done a higher jump. She had found, you know, it's so exhilarating. And it, it turned out afterwards, her family look, looked, when this was brought up in a, in a subsequent conversation, and they said, no, no such thing ever happened. She never engaged in any, any kind of skydiving or whatever. So there was this constant, almost Walter Mitty-like um, life that if someone did something, she would have had to have had a similar experience or a greater experience. And I think a lot of the, the, the people that knew her put it down to maybe a sense of insecurity or bravado and didn't realise that there were much, much deeper, I think, psychiatric issues involved. Mm -hmm. We all know sort of people who, who are into one-upmanship, but that's that's on a different scale. So take us then to August of 2015, when Jason Corbett was, as you said, he whatever had gone on, he obviously realised he had to get out of this relationship, despite the fact that he had, you know, he, I think he was committed to it for a long time because of the children. He tried to make it work. He didn't want to take another mother figure from them. Uh, but obviously things had got to such a crisis level that he was packing his bags and making his way home. So what happened then in August 2015? Yeah, what happened, um, Nicola, was that things were getting much worse. And I think Jason was becoming more and more aware of this campaign that Molly was effectively waging against him. And, and it must have been a terrible place to be. I mean, she was hiding recording devices around the house. Um, her spending was almost out of control. He was having to try and impose financial controls to keep to keep the family show on the road because of the way money was being spent. And he faced constant pressure from her family to sign these legal adoption papers on her behalf. Um, a lot of the neighbours were, were quite concerned because she had been spreading false um, stories about him. And it seems to have come to a head when they were at uh, a party, um, a, a neighbourhood party. Um, it's a kind of a traditional thing in, in the States. Um, they call it a cornhole party uh, around the kind of the, the end of July, early August. And she seems to have humiliated him in front of um, several neighbours. I mean, really to an extraordinary degree, gone out of her way to inflict pain, public pain on her husband. And he very quietly got up, left the party, went home. And the last thing he posted on Facebook was 
a comment that he passed that night, which was, why is it that people will believe the worst things about you without question, but have to be persuaded to believe the good things about you? And he was dead, I think, within 36 to 48 hours. Now, the fa- his family believe... Um, according to evidence that they've gotten from the children, was that Jason had a bag packed that night. Jason had been online researching flights home to Ireland. He had not booked a flight, but he had been researching flight costs, whatever. Now, his father's birthday was in a week or two's time, and they believe that he was going to bring the children home with him, and he was going to leave the children in Limerick and then go back to North Carolina to settle affairs or sort things out with Molly. And that was, unfortunately, a plan that never he got never got to put into train because um, he got up, I think the morning of August the 2nd, cut the grass. Uh, his neighbour was cutting the grass. They helped each other. They sat down. They had a couple of beers. Molly brought them out a few beers. And then totally unexpectedly, uh, his father-in-law and mother-in-law um, arrived. This is Molly's parents. They'd arrived from Tennessee totally unexpectedly. They he went out to the car. He took their bags out of the, the, the boot trunk of the car, brought them into the house. They had a family meal. Everyone went to bed. And it seemed a normal scene until police and ambulances arrived in the early hours of the morning. And what greeted them was a truly horrific sight. I mean, Jason had been beaten to death um, he, with a metal baseball bat and heavy concrete paving slab. The scene was shocking. I mean, we're talking about blood spatters across three different rooms, blood spatters across the carpet. I mean, he, a pathologist later said that the extraordinary violence was used against him. Uh, there were so many blows. Uh, the damage was such to his skull that they couldn't even count the precise number of blows that had been inflicted. And a blood spatter expert later examined the scene on behalf of the, 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 the North Carolina, the local police department. And he came to the conclusion that the first blow was struck while Jason was asleep in bed. What later emerged as well was that during the toxicology tests, they found that there were traces of a sedative in Jason's system. And that sedative matched a sedative that had been prescribed to Molly just three days beforehand. So it, it was clearly an attempt to drug him um, that evening as well. But what was probably most disturbing was the testimony from several of the paramedics who attended the scene. And they said that the body was cold to the touch. They were informed that the incident had just happened. But two of them commented that the body was cold. They believed that the actual attack had happened sometime before. And it was alleged by the prosecution that Tom and Molly Martins had actually delayed ringing the emergency services just to ensure that Jason was dead when they arrived. I mean, that's horrific stuff. They were brought to the local police station where they were separated, the two of them, and questioned separately. Both claimed they'd acted in self-defence. Uh, I think she told a story that she had been abused over a long period of time um, when questioned about supposed injuries she had got from this violence that Jason supposedly uh, put her under. She could never cite an occasion she was in hospital. Um, the father started to point to the the, the, the tragic death of, of Jason's first wife, Mags, and started to suggest that maybe that wasn't all that it seemed, that, you know, maybe he had something to do with that. Um, 
But they they stuck to their story, didn't they, the two of them, that this was self-defence. And yet neither of them had any blood on them and no injuries. I mean, that, that has always been their story, that they acted in self-defence. <clears throat> the problem for them is that it's just, it's simply not matched by corroborative evidence. I mean, to the point that uh, two separate police officers had to go over and warn Molly at the scene to stop rubbing her neck. She kept repeatedly rubbing her neck, um, almost as if to make a red mark around her neck, and she had to be warned to stop doing so. And despite the horrific level of violence that Jason Corbett had been subjected to, there wasn't a cut, there wasn't a scratch, there wasn't a bruise on either Tom or Molly Martins. Their clothing were covered in blood spatters, but there was no injury on any of the two. Now, Tom, in the subsequent murder trial, said under oath that he had never seen any incident of abuse by Jason directed towards his daughter until the alleged events of that evening where he claimed he had basically been involved in a desperate fight for his life to try and protect um, his daughter from her Irish husband. Molly, again, had come up with various stories of um, domestic abuse, but it was also stressed during the trial that police had never received a single phone call. And it's important to say this, in the United States, if any phone call is logged, in terms of a domestic violence or a domestic abuse or a domestic incident, it is permanently logged. It doesn't get deleted. So even if there's not any further action or not a conviction, that actual phone call still remains on the record. There wasn't even a phone call from the family home to do with anything involving a domestic incident um, towards Molly. So none of the facts um, supported their story, but they have rigorously stuck to this um, self-defense theory, which seems extraordinary because even the clothing that Molly was wearing that night, there were no tears in it. There was no damage. She was wearing a very, very fine filigree um, bracelet. And even the bracelet wasn't damaged. And she admitted she'd been wearing it throughout the supposed showdown with her husband. And Ralph, you covered the trial. Um, you were out in the States for, for a good while covering that. It seems to me in layman's terms that they were guilty as sin. So how have we got to a point where this week the North Carolina Supreme Court will have a special oral hearing in relation to what is what happens going forward? I mean, both of them were found guilty. They were given lengthy sentences. I think Molly, 20 to 25 years, which means that in the States. And Tom got similar. So what's happened and why are we where we are now? Yeah, very much like you'd say, Nicola. I mean, going through the trial, I mean, it, it, I've, I've rarely come across a case that to me, you know, I, I'm not a juror, I'm not a lawyer, but listening to the facts, it really did seem to be very much black and white as regards what had happened. Um, and it's also important to point out that unlike Ireland, where majority jury verdicts are accepted, so you have 12 people on a jury, you can have, you know, majority, you can have unanimous, you can have 11-1, you can have 10-2, but you can't drop below 10-2. In North Carolina, it must be unanimous. If even one juror had a doubt and held out, there wouldn't have been a conviction. And this was a unanimous conviction, both for Tom and both for Molly, of second degree murder. But we're, we're, we are where we are because of legal technicalities. And it all boils down to the fact that the trial judge, David Lee, 
in a lot of the pre-trial hearings, um, the defence and the prosecution were talking about evidence that they wanted to introduce during the trial. And Judge Lee made a number of decisions about what could and what couldn't be put before the jury. And critically, he decided two things. Evidence or statements that were given by Jason's two children to social services in North Carolina could not be introduced during the trial by the defence. They wanted to introduce these statements as supporting or corroborating their uh, argument that Molly was afraid of Jason and that there was some type of domestic issues between the two of them. And the reason the judge made that decision was that the statements that were given in North Carolina by the two children were absolutely contradicted by statements that the children gave in Ireland just weeks later. And the judge took the view that to introduce the North Carolina statements, you would have to introduce the Irish statements, which denied the North Carolina statements. So he said it was better to just leave them all out. And the other thing he wouldn't allow into evidence for the defence was a statement that you referred to earlier on, actually, that Tom had maintained that he had issues or concerns about the circumstances in which Jason's first wife died, Mags. Now, she died of an asthma attack. Um, You know, it was never disputed. There were multiple witnesses. Her own sister was in the house the night she got the asthma attack and her own sister tried to help Mags as she was struggling to breathe and had waited with her for for an ambulance to arrive in desperation when the ambulance was delayed or hadn't arrived Jason decided to put his wife in the car and he would drive to meet the ambulance no doubt that that's exactly what happened she died of an asthma attack but Tom suddenly recalled a statement that Mags's father had passed to him now And what's interesting about this is Tom recalled the statement as having been made by Michael Fitzpatrick at an event that Michael Fitzpatrick never attended. And then Tom amended the statement to say, oh, it must have been at a different occasion, a different time and whatever. Interestingly, uh, Mr. Fitzpatrick, once he realized that Tom Martins was making the statement about him, despite being very seriously ill in Limerick, he went to a solicitor And he made a sworn statement that at no time had he made any such utterances as claimed by Tom Martins. And essentially what Tom Martins was saying was that Jason was somehow to blame or he was somehow complicit in the circumstances of his first wife's death. And the judge said that the statement was incredibly prejudicial and he was not going to allow it to be introduced into evidence. And on the basis of those two things not being allowed into evidence... Uh, the defence legal teams have lodged their challenges. Now, the Court of Appeal took the view that those statements, particularly the statements with regard to the children, would have supported the defence case and therefore their ability to mount a full and proper defence had been compromised by the trial judge and therefore the convictions would be set aside. So that was taken by a two-to-one majority in the Court of Appeal What the Supreme Court will now have to decide is, did the judge act correctly in omitting these two statements? Or are the Court of Appeal correct in that those statements did impinge on the defence's ability to mount a defence to the charges? And what age were Jack and Sarah when they made the initial statements in in Carolina? Uh, They would have been quite young, really. They would have been, let me see... After their father died, so 2015. Uh, Off the top of my head, I think they probably would have been about maybe six and eight six and eight, seven and nine. And what's interesting about this, and I think it's very important to say it, is that 
Those statements were made immediately after Jason's death. The children were left in the care of Molly and her family. When the children made the statements to Dragonfly House, which is a social services um, agency in North Carolina, they were brought to the interviews by the Martins family. When the interviews were given and the children were effectively told to go home, they went back home with the Martins family. So I think it's important to set out the circumstances in which the statements were given in North Carolina. And it's also very important to say that once the children were in Ireland, they made statements absolutely contradicting the statements that had been given. And they had been such a, through such trauma. They were in the house the night their father was was murdered. Um, so if, if there's a retrial, which is a nightmare for the family here in Ireland and for the children, Jack and Sarah, who remain living here very happily in as much as they can with, with, with their aunt Tracy Lynch and in a very stable family environment now. But if that retrial is ordered, it will be ordered on the basis that that evidence is allowed in. We, ha- we hear the whole trial again, but with that evidence in it. And if not, they uphold the convictions. If they uphold those convictions, is that the end of the road for for Tom and Molly? Uh, Likely not, no, because they're still, if the North Carolina Supreme Court overturn the Court of Appeal ruling and say, no, the convictions are safe and we're happy that the trial judge acted correctly and properly, and there is still an option for the Martins to go to the US Supreme Court. So they would have to find a point of law and they could challenge it up to the US Supreme Court. If the North Carolina Supreme Court find in favour of the Court of Appeal, then that it will essentially be an option then for the prosecution. They will have to decide, uh, do we mount a fresh trial or do we accept that, you know, it's not worth doing. But I, all the indications that I've been given is that it, it will inevitably be a, a retrial, which is hugely traumatic for the family because if you think about it, uh, they lost their loved one, Jason, in horrific circumstances in August of 2015. That's almost six years, coming up to six years ago. And they would then have to face into another, I mean, the Supreme, the North Carolina Supreme Court could take anywhere between six months and 12 months to come back with a verdict on this. At that point then, if there's going to be a retrial, the planning for the retrial starts, which could take another year. So it could be two years before we even get to the retrial status. And then once you get to the retrial, you have the full trial process, you have the pre-trial hearings, the result, and possible another round of possible appeals. So unfortunately for them, they, they look, they've had six years of trying to find closure, and it looks as if any closure they found will be effectively thrown out the window and it'll be back to back to square one again. You know, if it's anything for them, I think they have done a fantastic job in, in telling us what Jason Corbett was really like and in, in pointing out how his name was smeared by by these people who are seri- who are still currently convicted of his murder as as things stand at the moment. So our thoughts are with them all. Um, okay, well, look, Ralph, thank you so much for your time and for explaining all that to us. It's an extremely interesting and intricate story, and we'll keep an eye on on that North Carolina Supreme Court hearing. And, um, you know, obviously, we, we maybe we'll come back to you when, when there is a decision on that. Honoured. Thanks, Nicola. 
from sundayworld.com. This is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent. <laughs>